Good morning to you, too. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, and we're here on another day to try to get it right. There is so much going on in the world, but I always have in the back of my mind Sankofa, Sankofa, that Ghanaian saying, the bird going forward but looking backward, you have to understand your past to better understand your present and plan for a better future. We have so much going on locally and internationally. And, and at the same time, we wonder where can we act? What can we do? Well, Ukraine, of course, is at the top of the list and will continue to be so. Yes, we wonder when the Refugees from Syria were trying to make their way around the world, trying to escape the hostilities there, the bombing of their homes by their own people and leadership. Were they accepted in the same way as Ukrainians? Sometimes you could have um, a contest of who, what, where, why, watching the United States and other countries in action when they decide based on many factors, I'm sure, politics being one of them. I think religion, skin color, region, how much money, what the propagandist idea is. But in the end, what it comes down to, we're dealing with human beings and we're watching our governments work governments around the world, because this is a nation made up of immigrants. And so there are people represented from around the world watching their home governments from another place, another time, and their reactions to this war in Ukraine, the war that was triggered, as we see it, by an invasion of one country into another. And many people may say, but that that's not it. There are so many other things that were part of tilting the scale. But at the end of the day, Russia invaded Ukraine. You do not invade another country. There seems to be a lot of talk about, well, you know, they're justified because of NATO. They're justified because of, of the geopolitical politics. I'm not a geopolitical theorist. My area is law. And I wanted to understand how we justify one country invading another country. You do not invade another country. That to me is simple. And I want to maybe show my perspective on this. February 24th, when Russia invaded Ukraine, I was hurt on many levels, personally. Who am I, an African-American woman um, in New York City? Why should I be hurt? Am I in some way connected personally outside of having some Ukrainian students or Ukrainian-American students? I, I'm hurt because what are we saying to young people? I hear adults, these same adults who talk about we don't want to invade the lands of animals as human beings because we are harming climate. We're harming the ability for these birds or um, whales or you know, deer to actually live their lives. We understand when the hand of human beings disrupts the landscape, the food chain of our animals, but we would 
support the invasion of another country by Russia. We know there is a U.S. Security Council. The United Nations was formed from the League of Nations in order to have peace on earth the best we can, given the fact that all things man-made are flawed. So all we can do is the best we can to maintain peace. And the United Nations Security Council has as one of its basic tenets international peace and security. And Russia is on that U.S. Security Council. It spent a lot of time to get on that U.N. Security Council. And what we are also looking at is the fact that looking at the past, the Soviet Union was this superpower that now um, Vladimir Putin wants to re-envision in the 21st century by any means necessary. So that also is part of the invasion of another country. You do not invade another country. What are we doing and rationalizing this depraved behavior. We're saying that politically there's a reason for it, but isn't there always, and this goes back to not just America, but this whole idea of invading another country as rationalizations of some sort. Um, we should be able to do that because God told us. Remember the God told the old world Europeans they could invade Africa, invade North and South America. God told them that. The rationalization for taking the Native American land, invading where we are now. So many people giving homage. Oh, I want to pay homage to the land upon which we stand at this moment. Yes, we pay homage. And then in the end, support the invasion of another country. We're sitting here on someone else's land because it was invaded by Europeans. I am here in this land because Africa was invaded by Europeans. It seems that the rationalization as to why an invasion should take place. Oh, yeah, but see, here's the real point of it. Isn't there always a real point of it? Isn't there always some reason why it's okay when Europeans do this? I'm, I'm just wondering, because the young people are going to be asking you, the young people, and that's why my heart was broken on February 24th, because we had just left America's longest war in Afghanistan barely six months ago. These young people were born into 9-11. Do you not see that? They have seen every aspect of bad adult behavior. They've watched January 6th in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. They've been part of the Great Recession where their parents lost their jobs, had to move from place to place, they have seen everything, including a pandemic, and yet we put this on their backs. Someone under the age of 25, think about what they've seen in their lifetime. And then you see these young people with guns in the streets, acting as though they're on the wild, wild west. Yes, but it's okay. You're saying, if they say you're invading my turf, you are invading my space, I'm going to use violence to right that wrong real or imagined, but it's okay because you see, Russia has reasons for doing this. And I understand, let me explain those reasons as we go on and on for the rationalizations. But when you see these kids in the streets with violence, using that as their means of communication, I want you to understand adults, what message you are sending to other generations that have already gone through 25 years of hell. So at this point, 
after all the protests and watching George Floyd's life taken from him before our very eyes, we still believe violence is the way. We still believe that Russia should make their political plans known. Russia should invade Ukraine and you have reasons. Well, I have a poem. It's not mine. It was written by Martin Niemöller. First they came for the communists and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. We're painting ourselves into a corner with such anti-U.S. rhetoric that we can't see. As critical as I am to the United States' behavior, past and present, are you not painting yourself into a corner if you support the invasion of another country for political reasons? We're going to have a musical break and then we're coming back to talk about something once again that we thought was buried in history. It is, remember the Tuskegee syphilis experiment? Remember that there was a time in which black men in Alabama who had syphilis were refused penicillin, not given penicillin, even though penicillin was widely available and could have been used to treat it. Remember that experiment that began in 1932 at Tuskegee Institute in Alabama? Well, there was another experiment on people in Guatemala. And that, too, has been a wrong that will not stay buried. We're going to be back talking about the Guatemalan syphilis experiment right after this.
Edwin Starr, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. We go now to my guest, and someone is, if you want to talk about a lawyer of lawyers, there are those who are super lawyers, and that is the name that the the title is given to Paul Beckman, who is an attorney with Beckman, Martyr, Hopper, Malarkey, and Perlin in Baltimore, Maryland, and the first lawyer in Maryland certified as a civil trial specialist by the National Board of Trial Advocacy, and that was back in 1980. You've been a super lawyer since 2006. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Gloria? I'm doing very well, and I want to get to this point of the you know, we get shocked about so many things. If we stay shocked, I'm sure, traumatized by all the events. But every now and then a story is something that comes by me and I say, I've got to I've got to explore this. I've got to know more about this. And this is what I found um, when I read about the syphilis experiment in Guatemala. And it, I had a conversation with you and and when I learned even more of the details, I said, you have to come in and tell people about what happened here. And if we don't mind starting from the beginning, please do, because we know about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment in which men who had syphilis were not given penicillin in Tuskegee, Alabama. But this is something I had never heard of. Would you please just start? How did you come across this case? Well, I was contacted by a couple of lawyers um, after this um, secret experiment uh, became public, um, who asked me to become involved. Uh, and having heard the basic details, um, I thought it was something that um, I could easily become involved in uh, because this was a terrific, horrific uh, experiment that went on really without any, any knowledge uh, to anyone in the United States, as I will explain. So our, so, our government and, and, and medical facilities were involved in experimenting on people in Guatemala. And how, when did this begin? So I think to put this all in context, and I think it was very good that you mentioned the study uh, of the Tuskegee syphilis study, which Uh, many people know about, which took place in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, where this was a situation where 600 African Americans um, were intentionally not treated for syphilis. They had syphilis. They were told they were being treated for syphilis, but they were not. And the significance of looking back to this experiment is that the same people who were involved in Tuskegee became involved in this experiment as well. But uh, one more stopping point before that. Uh, after Tuskegee, you know, the United States was engaged in a world war in the 40s, World War II, European theater, Pacific theater. And there was a grave concern that the fighting forces uh, who went overseas would contract syphilis. And that would affect the ability of the United States to provide a full, uh, healthy fighting force. So at that time in the 40s, there was no definitive cure 
for someone who had syphilis, which is a sexually transmitted disease which can attack the neurological system. It can have grave effects on an ability of a person to function. It can affect their brain. It can affect their body. It can affect their ability to work and to fight. So what happened was uh, another secret experiment took place uh, in a federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana, where inmates were exposed to sex workers uh, in an attempt to have them get um, gonorrhea. Wait, wait, so Paul, Paul, I'm going to have to stop you right there to, to better explain. In this country, inmates in a prison were then um, allowed to have relations with prostitutes or, or sex workers who were knowingly infected in order to give this disease to the inmates so that inmates could be studied. That is correct. And that went on from 1943 to 1944 and then was shut down. Again, the same individuals were involved in this. Uh, and I will mention specifically Dr. Earl Moore, who was the world's well-known syphilologist from Johns Hopkins University, um, and Thomas Perrin, who was the Surgeon General of the United States, but at the same time a trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation. When this was shut down, Gloria, in 1944, um, something significant happened, and that is that the government, the United States government, in 1944 passed the Public Health Service Act, which privatized the control of federally funded scientific research and placed it in the hands of the country's leading private sector researchers. And these researchers constituted study sections. And the study sections, and there were 21 of them, the first one that was created was the syphilis study section. And the syphilis study section was chaired by none other than Earl Moore, the same person who was involved in Tuskegee and in Terre Haute. And he appointed three other doctors from Johns Hopkins Hospital to be on the study section. And they had the ability to review and approved studies, which would then be submitted to Thomas Perrin, who would be the who was the Surgeon General of the United States, an employee of the Rockefeller Foundation and Surgeon General of the United States for approval of payment. But it was up to the study section to determine what to do and how to do it. They had full independence. They had freedom of control and direction from outside. They but they're being financed by the federal government. Financed by the federal government with full authority to make decisions as to what experiments to conduct. No federal control, no supervision. As some of the commentators who since have found out about this have said, you find the best people, you give them the money, and get out of the way. Give them the money and turn them loose. And that's exactly what happened here. So in 1946, this is now, as we know, um, 
if you add if you add it up, seventy six years ago. The syphilis study section decided to do an experiment where there would be nobody watching them. They decided to go to Guatemala, third world country, uh, certainly out of the view of the United States, no papers, no lawyers, um, and they decided to do an experiment, and I'm going to tell you the name of it, remarkably. The Guatemala study dealing with the experimental transmission of syphilis to human volunteers and improved method of prophylaxis. Can you imagine? A secret experiment that was entitled The Experimental Transmission of Syphilis to Human Volunteers and Improved Method of Prophylaxis in Guatemala. So we have a, a few questions. We have a few questions here. So we have in the Tuskegee experiment of black men who had already contracted syphilis and were then suffering with this disease with all of its horrible consequences and not being given any treatment when treatment was available, but being lied to that they were. But then we go out of the country and this experiment then is to intentionally infect people with syphilis and then watch the disease ravage their bodies. Is this what's going on here? That's true, Gloria. And the sad thing about it is who were the people who were being infected? These were people in the Army. And the Army was opened up because the head of the Army, his wife... Guatemalan Army. Head of the Guatemalan Army, medical director of the Guatemala Army. He was the one whose wife had mercury poisoning. And lo and behold... They asked one of the members of the syphilis study section to provide her with what's called British anti-lewisite, which was a drug that was really not on the market, but was used experimentally to treat people with mercury poisoning. It was sent down to Guatemala for the colonel's wife, and lo and behold, she got better, and that opened up the army for these experiments. They also experimented in prisons, uh, prisons in Guatemala where people uh, were uh, just ravaged uh, and had no knowledge and were told that they were getting treatment for vitamins. And then even worse than that, they went into the insane asylum in Guatemala where people were ill, uh, were mentally deranged, uh, and some of whom were children and they were infected with syphilis as well. So they were, injected, show, they were injected with the disease. Injected with the disease. And where did the disease come from? Well, it came in part from shipping syphilitic rabbits from Johns Hopkins Hospital down to Staten Island and then down to Guatemala and used in the experiments on the ground. This was the worst of the worst, unimaginable experiment. And to make it worse, it was kept secret. Uh, the documents that we have that have been produced and that have been made available, as I'll explain, were 
kept by the person on the ground, a John Cutler, who had been involved in Tuskegee and had involved in Terre Haute. And as a practical matter, this experiment was deep-sixed. Nobody knew about it. Nobody wrote about it. The documents say we're not supposed to talk about it. Now, what about the person who's in charge of the experiment? Every experiment has a principal investigator or a responsible official. And in this case, that person was Dr. Frederick Soper, who was an employee of the Rockefeller Foundation. And he's the one who went down to Guatemala. He's the one who met with John Cutler, uh, who was the man on the ground, who explained to him exactly what was going on in injecting people with syphilis and what the results were in watching them. Because many of these people, the majority, overwhelming majority of these people were not treated. And lo so and they behold, were they were injected. I'm still picturing this. Um, rabbits with syphilis who were given syphilis shipped down to Guatemala. They, the syphilis disease is taken from the rabbits into a, a syringe, and that syringe then is injecting the disease into the arms of people they're claiming are volunteers. This yes, is what we're. How, this is what the United States government is financing. One hundred percent. And this went on for months and months and months, um, and ended up being shut down in 1948. Now, how do we know about this? Well, here's what happened: after the experiment was shut down. All of the papers were collected by John Cutler and categorized and kept by him. He ended up coming back to the United States and even was admitted to the School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins and got his master's degree. And he continued to work secretly on the records that he kept for the experiment. So what happened? This is 1950 now. How did these, this experiment become known? Well, there was a very uh, talented author researcher by the name of Susan Reverby who had written about Tuskegee, uh, who had been told that there was information about Thomas Perrin, the Surgeon General, at the University of Pittsburgh. So Susan Reverby, Reverby went to the University of Pittsburgh. She saw those documents, and when she was about to leave, the archivist said, well, you may also be interested in the donation of these records from John Cutler, which we have. So she went into a room, and lo and behold, in there were about 52 boxes of documents, which had the names of each of the individuals who had been treated, what had been happening, what they were given, what the protocols were, to give them syphilis and gonorrhea and cancroid in Guatemala. She turned them over to the CDC, Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. They didn't know anything about it. They studied them. They turned it over to the uh, State Department. And lo and behold, in September of 2010, Secretary of State Clinton and President of the United States Barack Obama 
issued a public apology to the Guatemalan people for what had happened, September 2010. The president appointed a presidential commission to investigate what had happened, how the United States was involved, and one year later, in September of 2011, that report came out. And it is appropriately titled, Ethically Impossible, because that's what this experiment was. It's public record. People can see it. People can read it. And for those of you who may be listening to this podcast, I would suggest that you do so. It is easily accessible. And then following this, in 2012, um, I was contacted by a number of lawyers who became involved in this after the report came out and a lawsuit was filed uh, and is presently pending here in the United States District Court uh, for the District of Maryland dealing with this case. And the case is against Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital University School of Public Health and the Rockefeller Foundation and is pending here. I, I, one thing that comes to me, and it's, you know, stunning is, is not um, the best word for it because I would spend my whole life stunned by what this government has done and what human beings do to other human beings. Um, how is this person known, for example, um, Dr. Cutler? What happens so often when people have been involved in these horribly depraved acts uh, we see statues being pulled down and, and name changes of medical facilities. What, what is Cutler's um, legacy before this was revealed? Well, he died um, before it was revealed. Um, but I can tell you that Dr. Thomas Perrin, who was the Surgeon General, who approved this experiment and who was quoted as saying with a merry twinkle in his eye, you know, we couldn't do this experiment in the United States. The organization of which he was a member of, the National Sexually Transmitted Disease Association, which is made up of infectious disease experts and others, uh, the award that was the significant award for members of that organization was the Thomas Perrin Award. It was given out every year. It was stripped from him because of his involvement in the Guatemala study. Uh, Cutler um, had died before. Um, his, his legacy, unfortunately, is not one that anybody in the world would be proud of. Uh, and uh, he went and died without knowing that his secret experiment that he worked on was ever disclosed to anybody because every effort in the world was made that the least be known by everybody who was involved in the study. All of the people who were involved in the study are deceased. All of the individuals who were victims are deceased. Their, their heirs are alive, uh, many of whom know exactly what happened um, once this became public. And in addition to the United States government coming out with a report the Guatemalan government uh, came out with a presidential report as well uh, and also targeted people from Hopkins and uh, Thomas Perrin and Frederick Soper as responsible parties for this experiment. So the legacy, Gloria, is not one to be proud of. 
So Johns, Hop Johns Hopkins, um, what is their stance now? What what are they saying in relation to this lawsuit? They're saying that they were not involved. They're saying that they were government agents, but they're not government agents. Uh, the government didn't pay them. They were being paid by Hopkins at the time. They were not on the salary. And these study sections were set up so that they, that is the researchers, who were full-time employees of Johns Hopkins, could do the work and could benefit from all of the research grants that ended up flowing as a result of the work that they were doing, the Tuskegee work, the Terre Haute work. The, the main area for syphilis study was at Johns Hopkins. Um, statistical records were kept from all over the country at Johns Hopkins. Uh, being on a study section was an honor. Unfortunately, this honor did not flow as a result of this horrendous, horrific experiment. So where are we now with the case? What's right the now we are waiting for a decision from a uh, federal judge um, on cross motions for what is called summary judgment, which were argued about eight weeks ago. Um, this case has been pending for quite some time. Uh, there's been a lot of what's called discovery, depositions, documents. Uh, and one of the things that is interesting is that you know, how do you know that all this is really did happen? Well, um, meticulous records were kept by Cutler, which we discovered, which the, Fed, which the governmental uh, commission, uh, presidential commission, discovered. But in addition to that, and it's not in the, it's not in the presidential report. Fred Soper, who was the responsible investigator, whose main job was to protect the people in the study, the subjects, had a diary, and he kept a diary, and he donated it to the National Library of Medicine, which we were able to retrieve which delineates day by day exactly what he did, delineates his meeting with Cutler in Guatemala and being told about what was being done. He had the power to stop it. He didn't. The study section had the power to stop it. They didn't. Thomas Perrin had the power to stop it. He didn't. And if today one were to Google worst experiments in the history of the United States, you'll see the Guatemala study, unfortunately, being right near the top of it. We talked about um, U.S. federal law, but this also uh, could trigger international law and the United Nations Declaration of Universal Human Rights, uh, the Inter-American Declaration on the Rights and Responsibilities of Man, the Rights of Man in the Charter of the Organization of American States. It goes on and on. And plus there are national and international protections on um, biomedical and behavioral research. The Declaration of Helsinki, there, this, but it all goes back to the experimentation on human beings during the time period of enslavement, but also by the Nazis during World War II. He sounds like Mengele. They all do. Well, you're absolutely right, and one of the reasons that we are in federal court is because of a statute um, called the Alien Tort Statute, which permits you to bring an action against uh, uh, individuals who may be United States citizens by an alien. It's a one-sentence statute, and that's 
why we're there. But international law does play a part here because you're looking to international norms of conduct. And it is totally unethical and immoral to inject people with a sexually transmitted disease. No one would argue that point. And that's exactly what happened here. We've been talking with Paul Beckman, attorney with Beckman, Martyr, Hopper, Malarkey, and Perlin in Baltimore, Maryland. First lawyer in Maryland, certified as a civil trial specialist and a super lawyer, to say the least. Thank you so much. We look forward to um, keeping up with this case, and hopefully you'll come back with good news that there's been some resolution that's positive to the legacy of the people of Guatemala who've been through so much in their children that they can actually find justice. And of course, this medical experiment will be one in which more will be known and those names will be part of the scourge of history as they should be. Thank you, Gloria. Thank you. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We were talking with Paul Beckman about a Guatemalan syphilis experiment that is before the courts today between 1946 and 1948. We've had so many different types of ways in which our medical history, our legal history, our human history, man and woman's inhumanity to men, women, and children to our earth. It just seems to be an ongoing struggle, but it is a struggle. And that means action. That means that we can't just sit back and be run over by events. We do have to take a stand. We have to think about our moral compass the same way these experiments from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the Tuskegee experiment was not until 1972 it came to light, but it will come to light. And you have to think, on what side of history are you standing? These decisions are being made all around us. Are we sitting back watching as the cops did with the George Floyd murder as they stood by and watched that man's life be taken from him? What stance are you taking? This station, WBAI, is here to help us ferret out these things. We're not always going to agree. That's for certain. But as long as we have continually thinking, continually um, asking, reexamining in ourselves, our thoughts, where we stand, the syphilis experiment in which people were injected with a disease and then not treated, this is part of American history. Unfortunately, also part of Guatemalan history. We'll be right back after this.
That was the Guatemala Big Jazz Band. Yes, that was a jazz band from Guatemala. And I wanted you to hear it. I wanted you to, to feel the vibrant life of it as we have moved from um, war in Ukraine to the syphilis experiment on Guatemalans. And this is Women's History Month. This is also um, the end of the Black History Month of February. However, the, the Black History Month theme is a year-long theme. It's set by the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. And for full disclosure, I'm a member of ASALA, the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, that was founded by Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who gave us first Negro History Week that became Black History Month. He is also known as the father of Black history scholarship. And that theme for the year that's set by Asala is Black health and wellness. And so I think it's necessary for us to continue with that theme all year round because Black history is celebrated around the world and not just in February. There are other countries, for example, Scotland and England, where Black history is celebrated in October, not February. But that being said, this is Women's History Month, and I'm going to kind of mix the two of Black history and women's history and give us a profile in women's history. This profile is Irene Morgan, a freedom writer, and this is from my book, She Took Justice, The Black Woman, Law, and Power, Irene Morgan. Irene Morgan had had a miscarriage. She was traveling to Baltimore for a doctor's appointment. It was 1944. Irene had boarded the Greyhound bus at a stop in Gloucester, Virginia, bound for Baltimore, Maryland, about 170 miles away. She sat in the designated colored section. The journey was already emotional. The young black woman next to her was holding an infant. Morgan, at 27 years old, must have been thinking about the child she had lost. After an hour, the bus stopped. A white couple climbed aboard their Greyhound bus. The white bus driver walked down the aisle and ordered Irene Morgan and the young mother to give up their seats to the white couple. Morgan and the young mother and her baby were supposed to stand for the entire trip to Baltimore. This was the law and custom of Virginia. Morgan refused Irene Morgan probably didn't think of herself as an activist. She was a seven-day Adventist and mother of two children, a little boy and a girl. However, threats and curses by that bus driver would force Irene to make a move, force her to become an activist. The driver drove the bus to the town of Saluda and stopped in front of the jail. The sheriff served Morgan with an arrest warrant, but she tore it up. Enraged, the sheriff attempted to drag Irene Morgan off of the bus, but Morgan kicked him, clawed, and fought. The driver and sheriff finally dragged Morgan off the bus and into a waiting police car. After a night in jail, Morgan was convicted and fined $100 for resisting arrest and $10 for violating Virginia's segregation laws. She pleaded guilty to resisting arrest, however, she pleaded not guilty to violating Virginia's race laws. The appeal of her conviction for violating the segregation law would reach the U.S. Supreme Court. 
Irene Morgan's case would lay the groundwork for challenging segregated interstate travel. The NAACP's Thurgood Marshall was co-counsel to Attorney Hasty representing Morgan before the United States Supreme Court. On June 3, 1946, the trial court ruled and that decision was overturned went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and in Morgan versus Virginia, the Supreme Court ruled that the segregation laws violated the interstate commerce clause of the U.S. Constitution. And I quote, she says, if something happens to you which is wrong, the best thing to do is have it corrected in the best way you can. She says, the best thing for me to do was to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yet, despite that ruling, in 1946, the South continued to segregate passengers well into the 1970s and 80s. This has been a profile in women's history from my book, She Took Justice, The Black Woman, Law and Power. Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall on WBAI is available to you because of you our listeners, and I say all the time, the smartest listeners listen to my program. They listen to my show. And I say so many times, we don't have to agree. That doesn't stop you from being smart, though. And a smart listener would know that you can't get this anywhere else except on WBAI. The variety here from Ukraine to the Guatemalan Phyllis experiment, if you knew about that, you and you really surprised me. I didn't know about it. Where would you get this information? Where would you have someone like Paul Beckman, the lead attorney on the case, here explaining it to you and have the time to go into the detail that he went into for you to understand what has happened in this case? And if you have a chance to actually just Google search the Guatemalan syphilis experiment, you will see the report you will see exactly what Paul Beckman is dealing with, with Johns Hopkins as a principal in this whole uh, horrific event that took place saying, oh, it had nothing to do with us. They were our, our doctors, but it, it wasn't us. It was someone else. Who are you going to believe? The 50 boxes of diaries, data, logs, indicating that Johns Hopkins was, of course, connected with this. But we'll see. It's up to a judge. The judge will decide whether or not Johns Hopkins was connected and therefore is liable or was not. In that case, of course, then will be appealed. Like you heard, Irene Morgan appealed her case to the U.S. Supreme Court. The court we know right now is, is quite conservative in its leanings. And we'll, we'll see how legal history plays out. But we'll also see that what goes on in the dark will eventually come to the light. And if you can support our work bringing these things to the light, then please do. The pledge line is 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. I'd like you to become a WBAI buddy. And when you call the number, tell them that you're calling to support Law of the Land. Tell them that you want to be my buddy. Say, I want to be Gloria's buddy. I, I support what she's doing. I don't always agree with her, but I support what she's doing because I am trying to make a difference. 
I am trying to bring the best I can to you. I am trying to seek out the experts who can come on and tell you firsthand what is going on, not just in legal history, but in Sankofa. If we don't know our history, we don't understand what's going on in the present and then what is in the future for us. I think about our children. I think about the next generations. We got to give them a better world. We've got to work toward that. We've got to show them by example what kind of people we are. And when we make a mistake, we have to just apologize and go forward and do no more harm. That's all we can do. We're all fractured people trying to do the best we can. And in saying that, one way we can do it is have your children listen to WBAI. Perhaps you could have them just sit down and just enjoy the station to better understand these political issues and events, the differences of opinion, the differences in viewpoints. And of course, because we give more time to our topics, they can hear the experts from around the world, have them listen in, have them better understand the world in which they're living. And you can be there to help explain so that it's not just this cascade of bad news that they're living under and the, the the need for them to to actually ferret out with everything going on with social media they have access to so much information but you could be there to be the guide for them sitting down with them generations sitting down listening to wbai so they can better understand their world 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. Become a WBAI buddy, support law of the land, and help us do the best we can to bring the world to you. Help us all to better understand it generationally. Bring those young people to the radios. Bring them to their laptops and help them to have a better sense of what's going on. Be there for them. This would be a great way to have conversations about news events and other events taking place in the world. They can hear different opinions and understand that the world is not just what's been curated for them on their social media channels. Help them be a part of the WBAI family. The next generation is in your hands. At this point, I am sure Michael G., who's been my excellent engineer, is ready for you to say you'll support WBAI and for me to say I'll see you. On the radio.